What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Melissa and Evan Marshall's lives changed forever in late February of 2021. The murder of Evan's beloved father, Richard Donald Marshall, deeply impacted people across the country. Evan and Melissa's consequent heartbreak didn't end there, though, and neither has their tenacity. Relatedly, it means so much that they were willing to discuss their journey and all that ensued afterwards with us on what came next. My dad was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1950. In 1960, when he was 10, the family moved to Willoughby, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. He finished high school there and he married his high school sweetheart. She went off to Brandeis University. He was the second son of a family at the height of the draft in 1968 for the Vietnam War. My uncle, his brother Bill, got the academic deferment, so my dad didn't have a choice but to face the draft board and possibly get drafted to Vietnam. That was kind of the beginnings of his political anti-capitalist philosophy that he had. He was dodging the draft. He was hiding. He was not going to draft meetings. The draft board was really up his ass. So he went to Kent State to go to school as long as he could before he got drafted. And when he was in Kent State, he was deemed undraftable, luckily, because he was a big man. My dad was 6'3", 320 pounds. He's a big guy. He ended up staying at Kent State. He was there in 1971 protesting the war when the Ohio State governor called in the Ohio State National Guard and the National Guard shot and killed seven students that day. That was it for my dad. He had had it with Ohio. He convinced his wife at the time to go to the West Coast. They bought a little 1940s yellow and black school bus. They put a wood stove in it, a little kitchenette, and they strapped my dad's motorcycle on the back. They took off on a road trip and ended up in San Francisco. They were there for a couple of days, hanging out in the Haight-Ashbury area. They met a blind man who said he had gas money to go to Eugene. And if anybody would take him to Eugene, and they said, yeah, let's take him to Eugene. They got here and my dad fell in love with Oregon. He absolutely was the biggest fan of the state, the beauty, the cleanliness and the clean water. He just loved it. They divorced shortly after coming here. Unfortunately, my dad moved up the McKenzie River Valley to a little town called Vida. He met my mom in 75. I was born in 77. I have two other sisters. They were born in 1981 and 79. So there's three of us. I'm the oldest of three. My dad, he loved it here. He settled here. Then my folks divorced when I was 11 and he took it real hard. He became a little more of a recluse in his social life. He dedicated himself to taking care of his kids. We all played sports. My dad was my basketball coach in third, fourth, fifth grade. 
He coached my sisters all the way up through middle school. I didn't play in high school, but my sisters both played. He was a rabid fan when it came to my sisters. He was the parent in the crowd that was yelling the loudest. He was always just rooting for them and their biggest supporters. It was good because that helped them both go to college and play Division One basketball, which is a big deal for our family. We're about to have the first college graduates come out of this generation. He just loved kids. He was the dad to any child that needed a father figure. He allowed several of my friends when I was in high school to come live with us, took care of them. He was just an advocate for children. He loved being the kind of person that kids could come to and they knew that they could talk. We grew up in the poor school district, so there was lots of low-income kids. And one of the things that he did that was really cool. When I was in fourth grade, there was a kid that couldn't afford to buy basketball shoes. So he did a used shoe drive, and not only did he get a pair of basketball shoes, he got like 55 different kids a pair of basketball shoes. He donated them to the local sports league authority that runs the kids' sports around here. And like I said, he was such an advocate and a fan of all three of us in our sports and everything that he never missed a game. The day that I turned 18, my dad was like, well, hey, you're an adult now, so if you want to hang out and be an adult, you can. And he started letting us hang out at the late-night domino and card games that he had with the neighbor. It got to the point where my friends loved him so much that I would be at work washing dishes. I'd come home at midnight and they'd all be sitting there without me. He was such a good-hearted person. He just wanted people to be happy. He wanted people to be loved and cared for. And he did that. He did it anytime he could. Even though he had his own issues, he never really got his dating life together. And after my parents divorced, he was just a single dude. He fulfilled himself by spending his time doing good things for people. And that's why he loved the farm so much, because he knew that he was doing a good thing for people. That's kind of his backstory, where his life meets up with Food for Lane County Youth Farm, which happened about 2010. I had been a bar bouncer at the clubs downtown here in Eugene. I was getting tired of working nights, and so I parlayed my security skills into a daytime job at the Food for Lane County Dining Room, which is in downtown Eugene, and it serves 300 hot meals every day to folks in need. I was working one day, and they mentioned that they needed the caregiver on the youth farm. At that time, my dad was living in an RV on a piece of property out of town that he was renting. He wasn't really happy there. I told him I had this opportunity for him where he could pay no rent. They would pay his water and his electric. They just needed him to be the caretaker of the farm. But really, it was like a night watchman position. He didn't have to be there during the day. But in the evenings, after it got dark, they expected him to be there. He's not a law enforcement officer or a trained security person or anything like that. But his job was to let people know that they were on private property and that they couldn't be there. If they were stealing and stuff, that he made sure that he imparted on them who they were stealing from. Food Flame County Youth Farm provides nothing but fresh fruits and organic vegetables to low-income people. Anytime anybody was stealing from them, it was usually people that really needed it. But occasionally there was people that were just there to steal equipment. It was one thing if people were stealing food. It was another thing if they were stealing tractors and lawnmowers and whatever else. So that all worked out. He took it and he moved his RV in. They gave him a nice little area. It was all fenced off and he had this maybe 80 by 40 foot area in the middle of this five acre farm. Everything's going fine. My dad's the hit on the farm. He's always had dogs. He really loved collies. He's had several collies during my life and during his life. Everybody on the farm wanted to go see him and the dogs. It was a youth farm where kids got to work, I guess, troubled youth or whatever you want to call it. They gave them an opportunity to make money, get some work experience and something to occupy their time. It was just a great program. The kids all loved him. He loved when the kids were there during the summer. Evan and I have been together about five years. Before the pandemic, we had Richard over every Sunday for spaghetti dinner. We would just hang out with each other. 
I have my son and my ex-wife, we have shared parenting time. So it's one week on and one week off. We would always get my son back on Sunday night and then we would have spaghetti dinner with each other. He was part of our family. We saw him all the time. The other thing about Richard is that I bonded with him personally. He loved estate sales and garage sales. That's something I love to do is go to estate sales and spend $5 and get some amazing treasure. He was just the kind of person where if you said you needed a certain thing, he would go to every estate sale until he could find it. One of the last things he gave me before he died when he came over the last time we saw him was these strawberry candles that were vintage. I love strawberries and kitschy stuff like that. He gave them to me and it was really sweet. He just always knew exactly what you would love. And he spent a lot of time doing that for so many people. That's pretty much how it went until the pandemic. When the pandemic hit and the lockdown went on, Melissa, myself, and my father were all at risk. So we decided that we shouldn't be in each other's bubble. And we took COVID very seriously. We kept ourselves away from everybody except one person that was coming into our house. A year of the lockdown had gone by. Things were starting to relax a little bit. It was February, about five or six days before he was killed. We decided to have him over for dinner. I missed him so much. He'd been dropping stuff on my porch for me and saying hi to me through the window and all that sad shit that happened during the pandemic. So he came over and we had a really good dinner. We decided that if we were careful that we should be able to see each other again. He came into my house that night. He was in such a good mood. He was so happy. He felt so good. Like I said before, he was a big man and he had joint issues. He finally got his knee replacement surgery done and they fixed the problem in his hip. They did a little bit of back surgery on him. And all of a sudden, he felt 20 years younger. He was 71 at the time. I can envision him right now standing in my house, standing up on his tippy toes and stretching and saying how good he felt, how he was so excited to have this last chapter of his life and be more healthy and to be more active. One of the reasons that he was so happy about that, I don't have any biological children and neither does my middle sister, but my youngest sister has two kids. Before the pandemic, he'd gotten to see the new baby one time. The plan was for him to move to Salt Lake City with my sister and help take care of the baby because he wanted nothing more but to be in his grandchildren's lives. I'm disabled now. And the day that my dad came over, I had gone out and made a successful walk around the park. And that was the longest I'd walked in several months since a fall that I had injured myself. So I was getting back on my feet. He was getting back on his feet. And we made a pact. We were going to exercise together, get healthy together. He was going to see that through with me, and then he was going to go to Salt Lake. One of the things that I needed at the time was a wheelchair. I didn't have one. He had me go online, and we bought a wheelchair. That was on a Monday. On Friday, I hadn't heard from him. I called him to find out if he had any tracking information on the wheelchair. He didn't answer his phone. I'm thinking, okay, well, he's busy, or more than likely what happens is he's not a very technologically savvy person, and he let his phone die, and he never plugged it back into charging. This happened before, where we actually went and checked on him because he didn't answer his phone, and there he was, oh, shit, son, I forgot to plug my phone in. So we're not too worried about it. Saturday comes around, he doesn't answer. I'm starting to get worried. Sunday comes around, and he doesn't answer. It's now Sunday evening, and I cannot handle it anymore. I need to know what's going on. Like I said, I'm disabled and homebound. So Melissa went and picked up her best friend, Casey. Her and Casey went to check on my dad. Before Ollie and I will go out to the farm, who's my 14-year-old son, we would go out to the farm and check on him and tell him to charge his phone. And we would get ice cream on the way home. Just checking on grandpa, he's so silly. 
but this time felt different. Evan seemed really nervous and it was a couple days that we couldn't get a hold of him. That was not normal. I trust my intuition a lot and my intuition said, don't take Ollie. So I didn't. I called my friend. She is just kind of a ride or die friend like that. She was the only person that was in our bubble for the pandemic. I grabbed her and we started driving and we were on the freeway. I remember looking at the moon because it was about eight o'clock at night and it just looked bad. It just looked ominous. I don't know how to describe it other than I just had this sick feeling in my stomach. I told Casey that and we kept driving. We ended up driving up the path to Richard's trailer and his car. Immediately, the first thing I saw were his shoes. His shoes were kind of sticking out of the fence a little bit. And I was like, why are his shoes there? And I was very confused. We got out of the car. Ray, his dog, was pissed. She was barking and barking and she wouldn't calm down. This dog is a really sensitive, sweet, quiet dog. It just seemed weird that she was so mad. But then when she saw me, she calmed down and just started crying. She was just yelping and running to me. What we didn't realize was that she had been laying with his body for probably four days protecting him. And she was stuck there guarding him until someone came to rescue her and help Richard. Like Melissa said, Ray was the sweetest dog. She was on my dad's hip constantly. He actually had two border collies and he had to put one down about a month before he died. So Ray was just getting used to being the only dog on the farm. I just remember thinking, man, that dog really loved my dad. She must have been so upset because we're pretty sure that he was murdered on February 26th, but we didn't find him until a couple of days later. They're not exactly sure how long he was laying there before anybody found him. But we do know that the dog was there with him the whole time. My friend just went into damage control and she took charge of the whole situation. I was so confused because I didn't want to believe that Richard was gone. He was laying on the ground on his back. I remember walking up to him and like touching his shoulder and saying, I'm so sorry. It just looked like he might have had a stroke or might have had a heart attack or something. He was older. That's just something you are prepared for. Older people, if that happens. It felt obviously really sad, but I just kept rubbing his shoulder. Casey called 911 and I called Evan. I remember I didn't want to look at his face and see it without any life in it. I didn't want to remember him like that, which I guess is good in hindsight because he was shot under his nostril. I would have seen that and I didn't see that luckily. The police showed up. We took Ray and we stayed in my van that we had driven there. They ended up keeping us there for four or five hours, but it seemed like we were there for a long time. A lot of police and detectives showed up. It just seemed really weird that it was taking so long to release us because Evan was at home by himself, upset. And I was trying to text him all the time and let him know what happened. They didn't tell us anything. They just were taking samples and doing whatever. It just was really surreal. It was really weird to be there. And then more and more people kept showing up. Casey was still there with me. Some neighbors started coming out because of all the lights and all the commotion. It just was really chaotic and crazy. I remember I was in a tank top and it was cold. Ray was crying and they wouldn't let us leave. Finally, they released us, but it was like in the middle of the night by the time that happened. I was, of course, devastated, but we thought it was natural causes. The way that he was laying, she said she couldn't see any blood. She said that he looks like he'd just fallen where he was. And I thought it's horrible that my dad's passed, but maybe he had a stroke or maybe he had a heart attack or something happened, natural causes. 
I went to bed that night, well, attempted to go to bed that night with that as the idea of what had happened. The next morning, 7 a.m., I get a call from Detective Justin Myers from the Springfield Police Department. He tells me that my dad didn't die of natural causes, that he was a victim of homicidal violence. And that was the exact term he used, homicidal violence. He doesn't have any other information for me at that time. About six or seven hours later that day, he came to my house to talk to us and he brought with him Officer Brian Austin, who I was really glad to see because he was a friend of mine. I had hired him at a bar. He worked security for me. When he showed up, that helped me feel more comfortable. He sat down and he started asking me questions like if my dad had any enemies or if there's anybody that I thought would want to hurt him. And I said, no, absolutely not. He asked me if it was a drug deal gone bad, possibly, and I said, there's no fucking way. Finally, he said, well, I need to tell you that your father was shot. Somebody shot him to death. I could not believe it. I had just spent the whole last 15 hours thinking that he died of natural causes. So not only was he murdered, this dude shot him in the face. There's now a manhunt going on. They don't know who did it. They don't have a weapon. All they have is a shell casing. I had no idea how else to disseminate this information to everyone efficiently and as the least traumatic way for me. So I made a Facebook post. We knew that there was going to be costs involved. My dad was not a wealthy man by any means. We started to GoFundMe and the GoFundMe hit the $5,000 goal in like three days. The outpouring of people just came out of the woodwork. I mean, friends and distant relatives that I haven't talked to since I was a kid. The president of his high school reunion got a hold of me on Facebook and said the entire class of his high school is mourning for him. Someone started a meal train for us, which was amazing. It was the pandemic, so we couldn't see anybody, but we'd get a knock on the door and we'd open the door and there'd be like a casserole dish with dinner in it sitting on the porch and a really lovely note. People donated hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of DoorDash and Grubhub so we didn't have to cook. I had one friend who went to Costco and bought all the stuff that a family needs. And she brought over like gallons of water and a couple of gallons of milk, big thing of toilet paper and all this food. I mean, she must have spent $500. I think one of the things that was so surprising to me was seeing how Evan's friends processed this. There was a moment where his friends from Portland drove down to see him. Evan really wasn't wanting to see anybody, but they're like, we're just going to come down and we're going to sit outside your house and hopefully you'll let us in. He ended up seeing them and I've never seen a group, like just imagine a room full of these men holding each other, crying and talking about their feelings, processing that together. That was really beautiful. And I think healing for them to have each other. I've never seen that before. The days start going by. The media is up my ass. TV, news, radio, all the local channels blowing my phone up. I started doing the thing that I thought you were supposed to do, which is killers on the loose. We got to keep the word out there until they find this person that killed my dad. So for about five days straight, it was the top news story on all the channels. They were showing clips and photos of my dad and talking about his murder 10 different times a day on all these channels. I remember sitting there and looking at Melissa and just going, how are people on TV talking about my dad's murder? It was so surreal. I said, it feels like we're in our own Netflix crime drama. It had to be a story. It had to be somebody else's fiction. There was one interview in particular that I'd like to talk about. A woman from one of the local TV channels, she called and she told me that she was wanting to do a compassionate angle on the story and talk about my dad. 
how she was so sorry and all these things. I poured my heart out to her, cried and bawled and trauma dumped on this woman for like 45 minutes. And then the only thing she ran was the one thing I asked her not to run. They were asking me to speculate on why my dad was killed and who did it. I told them that I'm not going to do that. and I don't want to do that. That's all she wanted. She allowed me to become completely vulnerable, put myself out there like I'd never have with any stranger in my life. And she's trying to get that line. I felt like she played me. We're talking like three or four days after he was killed. It was eye-opening. That's all I had to say about it. The first interview he did, the thought just didn't cross our minds that they would have any other intention other than sympathy and empathy and getting that story out. He basically poured his heart out to someone for an hour and they didn't use any of the information that he told them. It was just heartbreaking to realize that they want the story. That was really eye-opening. They just want the salacious parts of it. That's the first time where we weren't really seen as human beings. It really feels like we're just a story and it's not, it's nonfiction. That was the first time where I felt like they don't really care who we are. They just want to have the top news story. That was shocking. It really made us question if we ever wanted to talk to anyone again, because you can't just rip your heart out and give it to the media when you realize that they really just don't care. We were more guarded after that, for sure. It all feels kind of like a blur. I was having to take care of Evan at that time, especially after they told us it was homicidal violence. He just didn't get out of his chair. He was taking care of talking to the news. The first couple of days I was trying to cook meals for us. I remember putting in a frozen pizza. I completely forgot I was cooking and I burnt a couple meals. I didn't feel present in my body. I've never felt that sort of grief before. When you learn in school, you learn the seven stages of grief. It's very cut and dry how you learn it. But then once you experience it, it's like I was feeling every emotion all at once. I felt like I was underwater. My body was vibrating. I would stand up and be lightheaded. It just felt like I was in a movie. It just did not feel like this was happening. I remember in the days after, we had to remove his property. The farm was trying to take back the space. So they wanted his items and his car moved. The news were just camping out down there. Every time we would drive up the path, we would just see a ton of people. After they had done the investigation at the farm, we're trying to sort through his things. They didn't talk to us or anything, but they were just filming. They were trying to catch whatever they could. And then I would watch the news and see my back, like carrying his stuff to the truck. And they're capturing that on film and putting it on the news. And it just felt so violating. Eventually, day nine comes up and they still haven't caught the person, but they apparently have a general idea where he is. They go on the real manhunt. They locate him in a town on the coast of Oregon. There's a 12, 14 hour long standoff, something like that. When he was in the standoff with the cops, they had given him a cell phone. He told them what happened. They said, why did you do it? He said, because he asked me what I was doing. This is where I feel like the story is really, really fucking sad and tragic. He shot my dad because my dad asked him what he was doing, right? So what I imagined happened was, and this was something that he had called and told me about on several occasions. I would talk to him like on a Monday evening, say, and he would say, oh, I got woken up on Saturday night. There was some kids on the farm and the dogs were barking. I went out there and I shot my flashlight on them and told them they couldn't be there. They gave me a bunch of shit, but they left. No big deal. Those kind of stories happened more times than I can count. And that was why he was there. That was his job. That night, I can only imagine what happened was, is the dogs barked. All he had in his hand was his flashlight and his cell phone in the other hand. Because that's one thing I told him. I said, 
that anytime that you're confronting people, have your phone ready, like dial 9-1 and be ready to press the other one. All I can imagine was he went out there, shined the light on the guy and said, hey, what are you doing? The assailant said that he heard my dad say that, he turned around and fired. Turned around and shot him for no fucking reason. He proceeded to tell the police that he's gonna smoke the rest of his meth and to get ready, because when he's done smoking his meth, he's gonna get out of the car with guns blazing. Apparently he sat there and smoked his last bowl of methamphetamine, got his gun ready and stepped out with his weapon. They draw down on him and shot him like some crazy number of times. Detective Justice Myers comes over and tells me that they got the guy. He told me what happened. I thank him profusely. I couldn't thank him enough for being so dedicated and taking it so seriously and doing everything he could to catch this guy. Based on what had happened to him, it's a different kind of closure than getting to go to trial and see him in court. I actually felt kind of robbed of being able to look him in the fucking eye, tell him how much I hated him. I had never, ever considered that in my life. I'm glad that they caught him, and I'm glad that they were able to find out what happened. So I get that news. I'm a little bit relieved. There's the public safety aspect of this person being out there. Also, the family of the victim. We're craving any kind of information we can get to square this fucking circle in our head of what just happened. Instead of worrying about a trial, the investigation was over. They found the guy. He's not just out there terrorizing other people. When we found out that the man had the standoff with the police, I personally felt relieved because I was scared that maybe this person was going to want to harm us, my son or Evan. My intrusive thoughts were definitely running away with themselves. I felt relieved that he was gone, but I also felt bad for the guy's family too. He had a kid, I think. I remember reading and he had a partner. Evan didn't talk about this, but the perpetrator's mother emailed Evan and wanted to talk. We haven't responded to her yet, I don't believe, but it didn't just affect us. It affected his own orbit of people too. Who knows how they're feeling? Part of me doesn't care, but part of me is like this one action just started this snowball for so many people. As soon as that part of the story happened with the perpetrator, the news media shifted all coverage to that incident. All they wanted to hear from me was what I thought about the cops killing him. No longer were there any questions about my dad or how I was doing, or how the family was doing. It was all about, can you give us a statement on how you feel about him being killed by the police? That shift in the media narrative was really hard to take. I felt really fucking used. I felt exploited. I felt mistreated. I felt lied to. I felt like a sucker almost, like I fell into their trap. This is the other thing that's fucked up is the morning after he shot my dad, he was arrested in the same neighborhood trying to break into somebody else's house. When they took him to jail, he thought he was going down for the murder of my dad. Well, they hadn't put it together yet that that was the gun that shot my dad and they let him go. They had him and they let him go. It's insane. When people say, what's it like? And I say, it's crazy making. I remember looking at Melissa and I said to her, our lives are going to be different from this moment forward forever. Who we are as people has changed forever. I didn't realize what was coming for us still. This episode is dedicated in loving memory of Richard Donald Marshall. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next on What Came Next. They ran that podcast story less than two years after the actual murder. That's just not enough time, man. I mean, come on. People give a wider berth to bad jokes. This was just too soon. 
What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production, co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.